0: So we're going to continue with Paul's closing theme in his letter to the church at Colossae. Uh, In this closing portion of his letter, he instructs the believers in three areas of their spiritual life. We talked about one of those areas last week, the area of prayer. He instructs them concerning prayer, concerning their walk, and concerning their speech. And we looked at Paul's exhortation concerning prayer last week. Today we're going to talk about our walk and our speech. And we're going to also look at Paul's closing remarks, his greetings, and his messages that close out his letter. I'm going to read uh, Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 5 to the end of the letter, verse 18. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions if he comes to you. Welcome Him and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. A papyrus, who who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church at the La- of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for this word and this gospel, and we ask that you would by your Holy Spirit, Lord, renew our minds today. Transform us, conform us Amen. to the very image of Christ. Honor your word here today and give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Fill our hearts with this word, Lord, that your word would be hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against you but glorify you through our lives and all that we are and all that we do. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin right there in verse 5, where Paul says, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom, Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. In the New Testament, the word walk is used in reference to how we live our life, how you behave, how you conduct yourself, day in and day out, in all of life, in everything that we do. Our walk is not just coming to church on Sunday. It's not just our time of worship. It's not just when we're doing something that we call spiritual, like reading our Bible. No, our walk before the Lord is in everything we do. It encompasses everything of our life, from the most mundane daily of tasks, to our weekly corporate worship and our time in fellowship with the Lord, in the Word, in prayer. So our walk is the totality of our life lived before the Lord. And there's no area of our life, no area of our walk that is not before the Lord. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, John writes, He who says he abides in him ought himself Also to walk just as he walked. So if we confess that we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us, then we are commanded to walk just as Christ walked. To walk just as Jesus walked is to conduct yourself as Jesus conducted himself. This is what it means to walk in wisdom. Paul specifically says walk in wisdom toward those outside the church that doesn't mean we don't have to walk in wisdom to those inside the church that's that's understood the way we are to love one another as brothers and sisters in christ as fellow members of his body the the totality of the new testament especially the epistles deals with this how we are to live our lives inside the church with those inside and also those outside. And Paul is writing to this church in this this Gentile city, and he's writing to Gentiles and to Jews. He's writing to the body of Christ, which which would include Jew and Gentile. We're going to see that in his letter, in his greetings, and his messages, there were only a handful of people of the circumcision who were actually Jews that were doing the work of the ministry with him. The rest were Gentiles. And so he's encouraging us here. Indeed, he's actually, he's commanding us to walk in wisdom toward those outside the church. We are to be wise in how we relate to all people. But here in Colossians 4 5, he is instructing the believers about how they are to conduct themselves with those outside the church. Thus the command, walk in wisdom, particularly toward those who are outside, those who are not believers, those who do not count Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. Jesus gave the same instructional warning to his disciples when he sent them out. Now, Jesus didn't send his disciples to the Gentiles. He sent his disciples to the people of Israel. He sent them throughout the cities of Israel. But before Jesus sent them out, this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So Jesus wasn't talking about the pagan nations. He was talking about his own nation. He said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. And he says, be wise. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside is to be wise in our daily interactions with those in the world. Or we could say it like this more accurately, with those of the world. Because we are of Christ, but we live in the world. This is why Jesus, when he prayed uh, that prayer, the high priestly prayer of John 17, he said they are in the world, speaking of the believers, but they're not of the world. So you are in the world, but you are no longer of the world if you are born again, if you belong to Christ. And so Paul is instructing how we are to interact with those who are of the world. That wisdom will mean maintaining our witness to Christ in all that we do, whether it is convenient to do so or whether it's not convenient to do so. Standing for truth and speaking the truth in love can carry a cost in this world, and we're seeing that more and more um, in all aspects of the world in the corporate world, in our workplaces, um, in the places we, we go to for recreation, all sorts of things, we're seeing this around us, that there is a distinction being made. And as we are people who name Christ as our Lord and our Savior, people commanded to walk as he walks, to walk in the truth and to walk in the light as he is in the light, we need to be wise with our interactions with those outside, and we need to not be afraid, but courageous as we interact with those of the world. We need to be wise. We need to be harmless, but we need to be courageous. Harmless as doves does not mean we're not courageous. Using godly wisdom and knowing how to engage with those outside is crucially important. That wisdom will come in our fellowship with God. So in other words, how are we going to know how to walk wisely among those who are outside? Well, that's going to come as we fellowship with God and fellowship with His Spirit through the Word of God. It means to patiently love those outside as well as to firmly and lovingly reject conforming to their worldly ways. The Apostle Paul described it this way in his letter to the Romans, Romans 12, 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So don't be conformed, to the world but be transformed we're in the world but we're not to be of the world and when the world looks at us they're to see that we are not like them we're not of them and this happens as we are transformed by the renewing of our mind and we do that by washing our minds with the pure water of his word and the spirit in us leads us and guides us and illuminates that word and causes us to mature and to grow in wisdom so that we know how to walk and interact with those outside. And in doing that, we're proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As the world can see Christ in us, as the world can see his life, his life that is in us, that sustains us, We are alive today because his life is in us. And it's that life, the life of Christ, that is to be known, to be seen by those that we interact with who are outside the church, who are of the world. So to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside is to walk conformed to Christ and his spirit. We do this as we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind through his word. And when we walk according to the spirit, we're not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. This is what Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And in walking by the spirit and in the spirit, we are being transformed as our minds are renewed. And as we walk submitted to the Spirit, surrendered to the Spirit and to the Word, we are proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that is ultimately what it means to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. We walk as Christ walked. We walk in the truth. We walk in the light, exposing the darkness. To wisely walk is to walk without stumbling. Or without causing others to stumble? Can we we live our lives and never stumble? I would say no is the short answer. Can we live our lives and stumble less as we mature in Christ? The answer is yes. I think the short answer is yes. We can never live perfect, sinless lives as Jesus did. He's our model. But as we grow and as we mature in Christ, we will stumble, we will fall, we will fail less as we grow up and mature in him. And we do that as we give those failures, those stumblings, those falling downs, we give those to the Lord. We confess them to the Lord. We repent. We come to him in humble repentance, and we give those things to him, knowing, having the assurance that we have forgiveness in Christ. Because Jesus died for us and shed his blood for us so that we could be counted holy before the Father. This is what it means when Paul writes that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he elected us, he predestined us to adoption as sons. God did that. We didn't do that. But because he has given us that gift, now we are to walk as his son walked, to live and to conduct ourselves as Jesus did. And he gives us the grace to do that. So it is by his grace that we keep walking just as he walked. And as children of God, there is not only an expectation, but a command to walk wisely, not as fools, Paul gives this very command in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, Paul writes, See then that you walk circumspectly or carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Here in Ephesians is a warning to be wise, redeeming the time, just as Paul warns in his letter to the Colossians. So in Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. So walking wisely is also redeeming the time. I believe we could all agree that 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 is true. To walk in wisdom is to walk redeeming the time. Well, what does that mean to redeem the time? That phrase, redeeming the time, literally means buying up time. The command is for us to be making wise and sacred use of our time. This includes the opportunities presented to us in our interactions with those outside the church. So redeem your time when God gives opportunity for you to interact with those outside Redeeming the time is what some might call time management, though it is much more than simply managing our time. It's how we use our time and what we use our time for. This is one of the most important and underappreciated areas of our life. We take time for granted, or at least I know that I very often do. And time is something that is very easy to take for granted. It's very easy to waste. It's very easy to let it slip by. And before you know it, much, much time has gone by. The amount of time each one is allotted every day is the same. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, young or old. We are all given the same amount of time each day. Now, granted, we're not all given the same number of days, but we're all given the same amount of time and however many days God allots for us in this world, in this life. We all have twenty four hours in a day, no matter who we are. And what, what you do with your time matters. The Scripture teaches we are to walk in a way that redeems time. You are to use up your time wisely in all the things you are privileged and responsible to do each and every day. When you consider what the Scripture is commanding here, it must be realized how vital it is to view our life as a whole, not only in small or large separated parts. In all of the small things we do every day, we need to keep in mind the whole of our life. In all the big things we do in our life, we need to keep in mind the whole of our life. The motto, Christ in all of life for all the world, communicates that Christ is the center of all you are in all you do, in all the daily rhythms of your life, there is no sacred or secular divide in Christ. We do that. Man does that. Man calls certain things secular and certain things sacred. But in reality, the totality of our life is lived before the Lord. And God doesn't give us a pass on those things that are secular and say, well, that's okay, that's secular, so don't worry about that. No. Everything we do, everything we are, we are that, we do that before the Lord. So there is no sacred or secular divide in Christ. Therefore, you must not divide your time into sacred and secular compartments. Well, this is okay because it's secular. Or this this is necessary because it's sacred. We are called holy. The word holy means set apart. That means we are set apart for the Lord. And if we are set apart, that means everything we are and everything we do is also set apart. Everything we do has a spiritual component that is either fruitful or destructive. That's true for our worship. It's true for our work, our rest, our playtime, our prayer time. Your downtime is spiritually important just as your prayer time is spiritually important. I know people who work seven days a week and they never take a break. And God commands that we take a day of rest. He commands it. He doesn't suggest it. He commands it. And when we willingly break that command, He will allow the consequences of that disobedience to come upon us. It may come upon us very quickly, it may come upon us very slowly. But we will suffer the consequences of that. That rebellion and that disobedience toward the Lord. So don't ever think that your downtime, your rest time is a luxury that you can pick and choose when you want to exercise. No, God commands it. It's spiritual It's part of your spiritual life lived before the Lord. We understand that when we talk about prayer time or time in the Word or or even corporate worship. But all of our life, all of our life is to honor Him, to be lived before Him. Everything we do is part of of our spiritual life, because we are spiritual beings. God's word must ultimately set our priorities. It's up to you to make sure you are using your time wisely to fulfill those priorities. This is redeeming the time. Walking wisely, redeeming the time, is having Christ at the center of all things, in all places, at all times, for his glory. Part of walking wisely, redeeming the time, is recognizing and using the doors that God opens to you to share Christ and his gospel. Yes, to those outside and to those inside. Thus, in sharing his gospel, yes, it is our deeds, it is our walk, our life, but it's also our words you can't share the gospel without speech. I know, you know. We talk about it should be our, our witness should be seen and not just heard, and I totally agree with that. But our witness should not just be seen and never heard. It's got to be heard. It's got to be uttered. It's got to be spoke out. There's got to be speech. There's got to be a declaration. Of the gospel for men to hear with their ears as well as see with their eyes. Your speech is powerful, it is important. Colossians 4 6. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Part of walking wisely, redeeming the time, includes our speech. Our speech, what we speak or what we do not speak, is important. Listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 through 37. This, in particular, is one of those scriptures that scares me because I talk a lot. If you know me, you know I talk a lot. Matthew 12, 36 through 37. But I say to you, that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. How we speak and what we speak is important. It is important that when we have something to say, And the Lord opens the door for us to speak that the words we speak are not empty and useless, but wisely guided by His Spirit and by His Word. Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let your speech Always be with grace. That means our speech should never be without grace. When scripture talks about your speech, it means there is a time you are expected to speak, not just remain silent. This letter is written to the church and to everyone in the church To young, to old, to slaves, to free, to rich, to poor. To people who know they have something to say and to people who think they have nothing to say. And the scripture reveals that we all have something to say. And what we say should be ordered by the Lord. And Paul writes, it should always be with grace. There are various modes of speech. There are different ways and times to speak. One important context of speaking is to preach and teach and witness to those inside and to those outside the church. What I'm doing right here, you may not stand behind a pulpit to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel, to communicate the gospel, but you are to preach it, teach it, and to communicate it wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We speak from pulpits, we speak in homes, we speak at work, we speak in coffee shops, or any place we find ourselves with an appropriate or an opportunity to speak formally or casually. This is our joyful work of evangelizing and making disciples of the nations. That sounds like a big, almost impossible task, to disciple the nations. Well, don't think of it that way. It's really very simple. It means you are to speak to the people around you. We can never disciple the nations if we do not first disciple our neighbors or our children or our brother or our sister or our friends, our family. We cannot disciple nations or neighbors without speech. Your speech will occur in many different contexts with different people, in different situations and circumstances. Sometimes your speech will be planned. Sometimes your speech will be spontaneous. Our speech may be quiet and low-key in a private setting, or our speech may be passionate and loud in a public setting. Our speech will largely be determined by the door the Lord opens to us, or the circumstance we may find ourselves in, or the tribulation we may be currently going through. Wisdom is knowing what to speak, when to speak, and how to speak. Wisdom is also knowing when not to speak. And when we speak, our speech is to always possess certain qualities Paul says, let your speech always be with grace. As God has been so very graceful with us, we are to be graceful with those we speak to. We do not extend grace because it is deserved, for we certainly do not deserve God's grace. We extend grace because God has freely extended it to us. He has freely given us his grace. Your speech is to always be with grace because God is always graceful with us. You realize that even when it doesn't feel like he's being graceful, he is always graceful with us. The fact that we are alive, the fact that we are living and breathing and moving, the fact that you are conscious of him, the fact that you have a desire for him is grace in your deepest, darkest valley, in your most difficult trial and tribulation, God is graceful, more so than we could ever imagine. He is always graceful with us. Therefore, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. you don't know what another person is walking through. You don't know what another person has walked through. And so speech that is always with grace is a great benefit because as you listen to people, as you speak to them gracefully and you listen to them, God will reveal and give you wisdom in how you are to answer each one. He also says in Colossians 4, 6, that our speech is to be seasoned with salt. So with grace and salt, or grace and truth, we'll know how to answer each one as we ought. Our speech must be seasoned with salt. The salt referenced here is a reminder that grace does not exclude truth. Some Christians speak as though grace and truth are mutually exclusive things. They are not. Telling hard truths, even offensive truths, is not contrary to grace. It's actually very compatible with grace. Knowing your sin and knowing the remedy for it is grace and truth working together. Failing to tell people the truth about sin is not grace. That is evil. That is lying to people. Sins of omission are just as sinful as sins of commission. Failing to tell someone the truth is just as sinful as any other sin you could commit. Omitting the truth is sinful. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth are necessary partners. We cannot be held by one without the other. The truth is we do not deserve God's grace. God's grace is extended to us in truth through Jesus Christ and without any help from us. Listen, church, without any help from us, the gospel of grace and truth is offensive to people who love their sin, and by His grace, the truth sets us free. We're not called to offend people for offense' sake. We're called to present the gospel with grace seasoned with salt. And if the message of truth and grace is too salty for those who love the fleeting sweetness of their sin, and you do know it is fleeting, We certainly do them no service by sugarcoating the message for their comfort or their taste. We must give it in the strength God prescribes it, with grace and truth. If the gospel is an offense to sinners or to saints, for that matter, we must let the offense that is the gospel work to break hard hearts. Better to fall on the rock and be broken by it than to have the rock fall on you and you be crushed by it. When you speak with grace and truth, you are inviting people to fall on the rock before the rock falls on them. Proclaim the grace and truth that God saves undeserving sinners. That's grace and truth. God saves undeserving sinners. What do you mean I'm undeserving? I mean you're undeserving. I'm undeserving. We're all undeserving. Every human being that will ever walk planet Earth is undeserving of God's grace to to just walk on this Earth. But yet God freely gives it. Proclaim the grace and the truth that God saves undeserving sinners. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, proclaiming the truth that God saves sinners, but that he also judges them. Don't fail to remind them that he doesn't just save sinners, he judges sinners. And who are the sinners that he will judge one day? It is those sinners who reject Christ, one day God will pour out his wrath upon those sinners who reject Christ, who will not repent of their sin, who will not trust in Christ, but love their sin more than they love the Savior. And you do realize that apart from God's grace of raising us from the dead and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, that is all of us. We all loved our sin. We all despised God and suppressed the truth and unrighteousness until God gave us a heart to love him, to desire him. This is grace. And if you've been a recipient of that grace, then this is what Paul is saying. There is a way you are to walk. There is a way you are to speak. There is a way you are to present yourself to the world and before Christ. The salt of our speech is seasoned. The salt, the salt our speech is seasoned with is necessary, otherwise the message has no power to save. Grace doesn't save without truth. The salt does not just tell us what we are saved to, but what we are saved from. We need to know what we're saved from, not just what we're saved to. The salt reminds us who we were and exactly what we deserved before the Lord saved us by his grace alone. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, salt applied to a wound burns. You ever had salt applied to a wound? It burns. The salt of his word burns the wounds of our sin, but it is necessary to save us, to heal us, and to make us whole. Paul says that when we speak with grace and our speech is seasoned with salt, we'll know how we ought to answer each one. Let your speech, Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. God's gospel of grace and the purifying truth of his word is the power of God to salvation. This is the gospel. To all who believe, When your speech is centered in the gospel of Christ, you can know that your speech will always be with grace. It will always be seasoned with salt. And the message of grace and truth will teach you how you ought to answer each one. In the grace and the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit... You can know how you ought to answer each one as you are equipped in his word. So I, I just wouldn't know what to say to somebody. We'll we'll get in the word. Start hiding the word in your heart. Start renewing your mind with that word. Start asking God to fill you with his spirit. What does that mean, pastor? That means that you live your life submitted, surrendered to the Holy Spirit, and it is the Spirit of God as as revealed by the Word of God that is controlling, that is governing your life, and that means when you encounter someone unplanned, spontaneously, that you weren't counting to encounter, you weren't planning to encounter, but God opens a door for you to speak grace and truth, guess what? The Holy Spirit in you knows how to bring that word out so that you can speak and answer as you ought. Speech with grace seasoned with salt is speech that knows how to answer each one. In the grace and truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, you can know how you ought to answer each one as you are equipped in his word. Peter wrote, instructing us to always be ready, 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You are made ready as you sanctify, as you set apart the Lord in your heart. You're to make room for God in your heart, your whole heart, not just a small room of it. The Lord is to rule all of your heart above anyone or anything else. The Lord is to be firmly established in your heart as Lord and King. As you walk in the revelation that you are always immersed in the Lord I want you to picture that. You are immersed in the Lord. Remember the picture of the cup? The cup's not just full of Jesus. The cup has been dropped in the ocean that is Jesus, and the cup is now immersed in the Lord. And as you walk in the revelation that you are immersed always in his life, you are to walk with him sanctified in your heart, ready to answer each one. Your answer is, knowing how to answer those you encounter. You know that as you sanctify the Lord in your heart. It is presupposed that he is the Lord and the creator of all, the living word, the author, the finisher of our faith. You are to presuppose that because that is the truth. He is the king of glory, ruling and reigning supreme over all, sovereign over all. We are not defending God. We are declaring Christ as the only Lord and the only Savior. When you answer men and you give them a reason for the hope that's in you, you are not defending God. Don't try to defend God. God does not need your defense. Just proclaim who he is. Proclaim him as Lord, as creator, as the only savior. Well, what if they don't believe me, pastor? That's not your problem. That's their problem. You proclaim the truth. You speak with grace, seasoned with salt, proclaiming the truth, declaring, proclaiming who he is, not defending who he is. Knowing this truth informs us how we ought to answer each one. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his own folly, lest you also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The difference is the wisdom of God. Walk in wisdom. Speak wisely. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. As you increase in wisdom, as your mind is being renewed by his spirit and his word, as you are growing up into Christ in all things, you will know how you ought to answer each one. It's not having all the answers. It's knowing who the answer is. Amen. Now, the last few verses from verse seven to eighteen, Paul has personal greetings and messages. And I'm just going to briefly go through these. And the reason I want to the reason I want to go through some of these is because I think it's easy for us to read, for instance, a letter like uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and then we get down to these these greetings and these messages and we just kind of you know skim over that and we think well you know that doesn't apply to me that that was to those people back then and it is true it was to those people back then but i think it's wrong for us to think it doesn't apply to us because i think all of these greetings and all these messages we find in all of these epistles tell us something very important so i don't believe that there's anything in the scripture that is not inspired by god to be there in other words I don't think Paul's inspiration stopped when he was talking about prayer and how we walk and how we speak. Now I'm just going to go into uninspired mode and just give some personal greetings here to some people, but this really doesn't, doesn't involve you guys. No, that's not true. It's recorded there. It was inspired. Paul was inspired to write these greetings and these messages just as he was inspired to write, let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt. So even these personal greetings and these messages by Paul and the other authors of scripture are relevant for us. And one thing we see in the Bible is that the Bible is intensely personal. God shares the personal stories, thoughts, and experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly of them all, of all kinds of people. And what all of this personal information from Old Testament to New Testament reveals to us is that God is intimately involved in the lives of his people. God is in the details. There's that old saying, the devil's in the details. That's actually not correct. God's in the details. And we give it, God is in the details, and we see it throughout Scripture in his people, corporately as well as personally. So, for instance, verse 7 Tychicus, a beloved brother. Listen to Paul's description of this brother. I have no idea who this brother is, but he's mentioned here, and he says, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. Tychicus, that's that's who he is. What's he going to do? He's going to tell you all the news about me. Paul's in Rome in prison. Colossae is 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 a church in Asia. So they're going to go from Rome and carry this letter all the way to Asia. And they're going to read this letter in this church, in this house where this church meets. And Tychicus is going to tell you all the news about Paul who's in prison. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose. Not just to tell about Paul, but but listen to this. This very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. And what we see here is Paul's concern was always for the church. And why was Paul's concern always for the church? Because Christ's concern is always for his church. Do you know what this tells us in this letter written 2,000 years ago? It tells us that Christ's concern is still for his church. Yes, even Christ Fellowship Church here in Taylor, Texas in 2022 AD in the year of our Lord. He's still concerned about his church. And he says in verse 9, then he says, "With, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. Now, he doesn't mention it here, but what we know about Onesimus is Onesimus is a slave. Not, not just any slave, but Onesimus is a runaway slave. He, he obviously stole something from his master and then ran away from his master. And through divine circumstance, while in Rome... He encounters the Apostle Paul. What an accident. What a coincidence. No? No coincidence. That was the sovereign plan and purpose of God. And Onesimus, the runaway slave and thief, gets saved, comes into a knowledge of Jesus Christ, and begins to serve the Apostle Paul in the work of the gospel. And Paul is writing this letter, and he's going to send it by the hand of of this messenger. And Tychicus is going to tell them, And Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, not slave, because there are no slaves in Christ. Paul just wrote that in this letter. There is no longer slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. He's, He's not just a beloved brother. A beloved, that's a term of intense endearment. A beloved brother, but he is also one of you. In other words, he's a citizen of Colossae. He's not just a slave owned by somebody. He's a fellow citizen. It speaks of his freedom. It speaks of his standing. Paul is writing this in this ending of his letter here. And he says, they, Tychicus, and Onesimus, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. That might not mean anything to us today, but to that runaway slave who is now going back to his master and will be literally at the mercy of his master, and his master is not obligated to the apostle Paul to do anything, but Paul, in, the letter, in our little letter called Philemon, Philemon was the owner of Onesimus. And Paul writes a letter, could have been delivered with this letter, because Philemon was in the church there. And that letter is delivered to that master. And Paul is exhorting that master to treat this slave as a brother and a fellow citizen. And to not only not exercise his right of retribution against this runaway criminal and slave, but to set him free and have grace upon him the very way Christ had grace upon you, Master Philemon. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with us today in terms of the details and the the, the things that are being worked out there, but, but we see how it absolutely has something to do with us today, because we're just as guilty as Onesimus, We're just as hard-hearted, potentially, as Philemon. And God has poured out his grace, and Paul is reminding the believers of this grace, and he's saying, let grace abound. Let grace rule the day. Not injustice, grace. And so he he says that Tychicus and Onesimus are going to give the report about the things that are happening there in Rome. Aristarchus is called a fellow bondservant, a fellow prisoner. He greets you. This is the guy that was run out of the city with Paul in Ephesus. He was an official there who got caught up in all of the riot because Paul had preached the gospel there in Ephesus. And then he says this, With Mark, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Well, who's Mark? John Mark, we see him in Acts 13.13, and Mark bails on Paul. He deserts Paul during the missionary journey. And then in Acts 15.37-40, when Paul's getting ready to go back on another missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go, and Barnabas wants to take along John Mark. And Paul says, not going to do that again. He deserted me once. He's not going to desert me again. We're not taking Mark with us. And Barnabas, Acts 15, says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, disagreement. And Paul and Mark left and went to Cyprus, their home island. It's where their family's from. And Paul and Silas go on the missionary journey. But here, now we see Paul introducing to the believers back at Colossae, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, in parentheses, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Paul's writing these instructions, welcome him. What do we see here? We see reconciliation. We know the scripture records a division, a dissension between these two that separated them for a time. But now we see in the, in the ending of this letter, in these greetings, in these messages, we see that a reconciliation has taken place between Mark and Paul and Barnabas and Paul. What does that tell us? I mean, this is what I love about the Scripture. It it doesn't hide that Paul and Barnabas had a dissension, that had a disagreement, and it was not small. It tells us. Because we get into disagreements and dissensions that are not small with one another and with those around us. And what are we to do? Well, we're to do the very thing that Paul and Barnabas and Mark did. We're to be reconciled to one another because we have been reconciled to the Father in Christ by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what right do we have to not be reconciled to one another if we are in Christ? We don't have a right to do that. We must be reconciled. And we see that reconciliation here in this letter. And then he goes on and he talks about Jesus called justice and how, how Arist- uh, Aristarchus and, and Mark and Jesus called justice, are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. These were Jews. They proved to be a comfort to me. Mark proved to be a comfort to Paul, even after Paul would not take him along on his journey. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant, a slave of Christ, greet you always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Epaphras is one we see in another letter where he almost dies because he worked so hard, he almost worked himself to death. But Paul says, God had grace on me and he raised him up from his sickness so that he can continue ministering to me and serving me in the gospel. And he goes on and he, he talks about the church at Laodicea and the church, uh, those in Heropolis. And he says, share this letter with them. This is how we know these letters were passed around to all the churches. They were copied by hand, and they were spread far and wide. And so we have thousands upon thousands of these manuscripts and these letters. And guess what? Written over centuries by hundreds of different people. And what do we have? We have a record that is reliable because we can look at all of those manuscripts written across centuries by thousands of different people, and we can see the unity of in those manuscripts and we know this wasn't a big game of telephone and we don't really know what they really said no we know exactly what Paul really wrote what God really inspired because we have the record of it preserved for us by the power of God and we can be certain that this is the inspired Word of God reliable even in our English translation I didn't say inerrant in our English translation. You can find typos in your Bible. I said reliable. In other words, the truths conveyed in our English translations are the truths conveyed in the original manuscripts. So these different churches and these different people were greeted by Paul and exhorted by Paul. And he says, now when this... Verse 16, when this epistle is read among you, see that you also read the epistles written to those others. Then he says to a fellow named Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This is someone hosting church in their home. He no doubt was an overseer, a pastor. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. The ministry you have, you have received it in the Lord. It's not a ministry you chose for yourself, it's a ministry that was given to you by the Lord. That's not just true for pastors and elders. I, as a pastor, I am to equip you, saints, for the work of the ministry. Well, where did that work of the ministry come from? According to Paul, it was given to you by the Lord. So take that ministry given to you and be faithful with it and honor God with it and fulfill it to the utmost, to his glory. Amen? And then Paul ends with these words, this salutation by my own hand. We know Paul had an eye disease. He was probably, if not blind, mostly blind. He had people write his letters. He dictated his letters, but in this case, this letter is being dictated, but Paul signs this salutation. He says, by my own hand, Paul. He signs his name, and he says, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So at the end of that letter, in Paul's probably not so good handwriting because he was blind or just about blind, he writes the salutation. And what does that tell us? That tells us that Paul is pointing to this recognizable reminder of his own condition, of his own circumstance, but not just that, and most importantly, of his love for all the saints. And Paul's love for all the saints came from the love of Christ for all the saints. Christ loved the church at Colossae and all of those saints that were in it. But I want you to know today, right now, Christ loves Christ Fellowship Church and all the saints that are in it. And Christ loves every part of his church, every local expression, every corporate expression. Christ loves his church as much today as he did in that day. He loves it as much today as he did when he died on the cross to redeem it. Don't forget that. As life presses on you, don't forget that God loves you. And he loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son to die at the hand of murderous sinners on your behalf. Amen. Let's prepare to come to the table of the Lord that reminds us that Christ did die for us undeservedly. He did pour out His blood for us to wash us, to purify us, to take away our sin. So, Christian, as we prepare to come to the table, prepare your hearts and welcome to Jesus. Let's all stand. I'm going to give you your charge, and then uh, we're going to all have lunch together after we briefly set the room up. So don't go anywhere. In these verses that we looked at today, Paul gives instructions that there is a way we are to pray, a way we are to live, a way we are to speak. And that we do all of this by His grace. And we do this with grace. We're to be guided by wisdom that comes from His Spirit and His Word. And God has revealed throughout His Word that He is involved in the ordinary daily details of our life, from the smallest things to the greatest things, from the least significant to the most significant events that happen in our life. God is in the details. Pray and walk and speak as though you are immersed in his life, because you are. Never think anything is too small or too great to fall outside his care and concern and love for you. Know this and share this truth with everyone God gives you opportunity to share it with. Share with them that Jesus Christ is the only Lord, the only Savior, the only hope they have in life or in death. To God be all the glory. Amen.